I hope you are as grateful as I am that God has given us music to help what's in our mind drop into our affections and our heart. And that's what should happen. That's why good theological songs are vitally important uh, for all of us to listen to the right kind of music when it comes to teaching principles in the Bible so that we learn good theology in the mind. And when we hear those songs, it moves our affections to God and we praise Him and worship Him. Thank the Lord for our choir and the music, Brother David, and how the Lord has used that to prepare our hearts today. Now we are in Paul's third missionary journey, and we're studying through the book of Acts, and today we come to a peculiar or strange text of Scripture. And you'll see what I mean this morning. I hope it will stretch you in your mind and help you engage in your Christian walk, and I hope it will give you an understanding a greater understanding of of the gospel of Jesus Christ and scriptural baptism and all that God is doing in this world in the gospel of Jesus Christ reaching the ends of the earth. The major theme of chapter 19, of which we're not going to see at all this morning, is that the gospel of Jesus Christ triumphs over the powers of darkness. Amen? And when you get to Ephesus, that's exactly what's going on. In your mind, you need to see Ephesus as the uttermost parts of the earth. Because we've gone Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Well, when you get to Ephesus, this would have been Paul's understanding of the last or final frontier in Paul's movement of the gospel as God has encouraged Paul to do so. And that's important for us to think about as we look at this passage of Scripture. I am tempted... To give you all the background information of Ephesus in this sermon, but I'm not going to do that for various reasons. But we will, next time we look into the book of Acts, we'll talk about Ephesus like we have other cities, such as Corinth and Antioch and different places. But this one certainly has a strategic place. Just to say a little is to remind you that um, at this particular time, Ephesus was the religious center of the entire Roman Empire. So the gospel leaves sin city like Corinth and it goes into the religious hub of the entire Roman world at that particular time. And here's what you learn. Even with statues in the middle of the town like Artemis and Diana, it has no power to stop the gospel. Sedona, Arizona is known as kind of the new age place. Does it compare to Ephesus? I can promise you that. It doesn't compare And the gospel can change Sedona, Arizona today, just like it did Ephesus. God can save anybody, anywhere, anytime. He has the power to do it. Acts 19 is made up of four parts. There's the encounter with the disciples of John. Peculiar, strange text, but needs to be heard today clearly. And then you have a Jewish exorcist that's going to take place. Y'all remember the sons of Sceva? that are attempting to mimic what Paul did and demonic forces jump on them and strip them naked and run them out of the building. Boy, you all want to be here for that sermon, don't you? But that's coming up. God has the power over all of that. And then there's a transitional travel log given in verses 21 through 22. And then you're going to have the great European trade union riot that ends Ephesians. Remember, Paul was in Ephesus how many years? Three. Y'all realize that's twice as long as any city Paul ever stays in. 
He's in Corinth for a year and a half, which is amazing. But here he is in Ephesus for three years. This passage you're going to read has caused some people to not have their theological screws tightened down enough in their minds. It's caused people to come away with the Jesus-only movement, which means there really is no Father or Spirit. It's this kind of modalism, which is sad. And then it also has caused people to believe in a subsequent work of the Holy Spirit, separate from salvation, where you are baptized with the Holy Spirit. Uh, That's not taught in the Word of God at all, and we're going to try to unpack all of that. Do you remember the theme of Acts? It is the universal gospel of Jesus Christ becoming universal in experience and application to the ends of the earth. And that's what we see in our passage. The Bible says, chapter 19, verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, listen, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? Notice how he words that, very strategic. The emphasis is upon the object of of their faith. Into what were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Now, as Paul encounters these disciples of John, where is Apollos? He's in Corinth, and what is he doing? He's watering the gospel seed. Do you remember uh, Paul would say in the book of Corinthians that Paul, I planted Apollos, but God gave the increase. So Apollos is back in Corinth and he is watering that seed planted by the Lord. And then the Bible says that Paul encounters some, some disciples. Now maybe he observes something in their demeanor. Maybe they're conversing and he's thinking something's not quite right. In their explanation of our understanding of of theology or who the person of Jesus is, it leads to some questions. And as we quickly dive into this, what is the first question? In Ephesus, when he meets these disciples, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? We at least have to say that Paul is establishing some common ground with these disciples. In other words, the question may quickly come into your mind, were these believers? Right? Right? And so Paul is just meeting them the first time. And so he asks the question to clarify what the object of their faith truly is. Common ground, is it possible that they were believers? Yet they respond, they've not even heard of the Holy Spirit. Now be careful here. Does this mean that they had absolutely never heard of the person and work of the Holy Spirit at all? I don't think that's the case. I don't think you should take that as the meaning of what the Scripture says in this particular point. Since they knew of John's baptism, what do we know about John's sermons and preaching? He often taught about the Holy Spirit of God. So, I believe that they would have had some personal level of the existence of the Holy Spirit of God. So, their response is not really 
we don't know that the Holy Spirit exists. The response is, we don't even know the Holy Spirit has been given or poured out. And just about across the board, every New Testament scholar in the Greek language comes away with that understanding that they're not denying that the Holy Spirit exists. They're just saying, we have no idea that He has yet been given. John will talk clearly about the Holy Spirit in his gospel. Now, we're not talking about John the Baptist. We're talking about John the Apostle. But he's going to talk about it. You know that Jesus himself gives these words. On the last day of the feast, the great day, of the great day Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom these would believe whom those who believed in Him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus had not been glorified. And then when you flip over to John's Gospel, John is, uh, I'm sorry, Luke's Gospel. Here's what Luke says. And this is the preaching of John the Baptist. Luke chapter 3 verse 15. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John who is John the Baptist, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire." So I don't think they're totally ignorant of the Holy Spirit. I think they're ignorant of the fact that the Holy Spirit had been poured out. And Jesus, of course, upon Jesus' ascension to heaven, the Holy Spirit was poured out. At this point, the Apostle Paul is going to give the rest of the story. And the rest of the story is going to be the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can anybody remember who this book was written to? Acts and Luke were both written to one person. His name was Theophilus. Now, now track with me and think about this. Theophilus, most people believe that uh, Luke writes the letters, which are two volumes. He wrote Luke and Acts. And he writes these two volumes to an individual named Theophilus who was prestigious and in a high position of authority. Kind of like a gospel track for you to understand it better, Right? This is uh, Gospel Track 1 and Gospel Track 2. In, in, gospel, in Luke's Gospel, it was more all that Jesus began to do and to teach for Theophilus so he could understand the Gospel and the theology. And then when you get to Acts, it is continuing all that Jesus both began to do and to teach. And the major thing is, Jesus Christ fulfills it all. Are y'all listening? Jesus Christ fulfills it all. So I want you to know that it's very important for us to think about what the average person would have known at this particular time as the church of Jesus Christ is growing. Now, there's no question that Jesus Christ fulfills it all. That's called promise and fulfillment. And what you see in Acts is promise and fulfillment. You have all those promises in the Old Testament leading up to the last Old Testament prophet who was... John the Baptist, right, was the last Old Testament prophet. And he brings about the understanding of promise and fulfillment. 
And I mentioned that about Theophilus. For Luke, the good news uh, that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all and every promise in the Bible is, is the understanding of taking that knowledge of Jesus Christ being the fulfillment of it all to the ends of the earth. That is the acknowledgement. That is what Luke is doing. So after Paul explained the gospel to them, the life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, outpouring of the Spirit to these men, they believed by grace. That's the way all people are saved, right? By grace, through faith. This demonstrates that their belief was not that they raised their hand during an invitation. It was not that they signed a card and everything's okay. It wasn't even that they prayed a prayer. Baptism, water baptism, was the symbolic representation that they were believers. Now folks, there are a lot of churches out there that are dumbing down baptism. There are a lot of churches that are saying, well, baptism is not really important anymore. As a matter of fact, you can join our church and be a believer and never follow in water baptism. I think that we're making a tragic error when we do those things. So Luke's statement is a redemptive theological statement more than a formula because he says they were baptized how? Into the Lord Jesus Christ. And some of your Jesus-only people who deny the Father and the Spirit they turn to that and they say, well, this text says Jesus, they were baptized into Jesus. Well, what was the model that Matthew gave us? Baptizing in the name of the... Amen. You read your Bible, right? So I think it's very, very important. If Paul had a pattern of baptizing people, if it was a certain pattern, I think it would have been the pattern that Jesus gave. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. What Luke means is that they received a distinctly Christ-centered baptism. Now folks, this is important, right? They had received the baptism of John, which was a baptism of repentance. They, they had heard John preach. They had heard what Jesus said. And they were convicted by the Holy Spirit. And they repented. And they were waiting for what? The promise of the Messiah. And they were waiting on the outpouring of the Spirit of God. That's what we know about them. These signs that accompany this, according to the Word of God, are signs that the, they laid hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 of them in all. So what do we say about Paul laying hands on them and them receiving the Holy Spirit? And then what do we say about the accompanying signs that were with these individuals. Tongues and speaking and prophesying. What can we say about this? Well, I would tell you that these signs were visible and public indicators that they had the Spirit of God now. They were, they were public indicators. Now, not every convert in the book of Acts experienced these manifestations. Is that not correct? I mean, we've talked about a plethora of people who were saved by grace through faith. And the Bible never talks at all about them speaking in tongues. Yet, there are four occasions where once they believed in Jesus Christ, it was accompanied by these particular signs. Now, you ready to be stretched and thinking with me? What chapters are they? Acts 2, 
was the day of Pentecost, which will never be repeated in its full sense, right? To ask for another Pentecost day would be to ask for another crucifixion. That day won't happen again, right? What was that that took place? You know, uh, Peter's even going to say that this is that that Joel prophesied in Joel chapter 2, correct? And then you have Acts chapter 8. And in Acts chapter 8, you have the Samaritan mini-Pentecost. How does the gospel proceed? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. So you have in Acts chapter 8, a Samaritan Pentecost. And then when you get to chapter 10, very important, you have another salvation experience by people accompanied by signs and wonders. Again, tongues. And it was in the house of Cornelius. What do you know about Samaritans? They were half-breeds. They were imports from Assyrian. Because when Assyrians wanted to nationalize, take away their national identity, they would intermarry uh, Israelites with foreigners. So the Samaritans were just that. They were half-breeds. And what do we know about the Jewish... uh, What are their thoughts about Samaritans? What dealings did the Jews have with the Samaritans, right? When Jesus won the woman at the well, she was a woman and she was a Samaritan and the gospel saved her soul. So with Samaria, you've got that. And so here are the Jews thinking that we own God. They have their monopoly. And what is the tenor of Acts? The gospel is for anybody, anywhere, anytime. And so the Jews see the Samaritans come to faith in Jesus Christ. And what were the signs that accompanied their salvation. The same ones that accompanied Paul in their, in their salvation. Okay, When you get to chapter 10, what is Cornelius? A full-blown Gentile, like me and you. Unless you're Jew here, right? And what does the gospel do? It penetrates the heart of Cornelius. And so the Jews that were believers would be able to look at the Samaritans. They would be able to look at the Gentiles. And then what can we say about Ephesus? Well, that's the end of the frontier. That's the, that city is unreachable, right? Wrong. It's not unreachable. And thus, you have the disciples of John with the exact same understanding of the gospel and the same accompanying signs. Folks, geography is important at this point too. How the gospel is moving to the ends of the earth. So, my point of telling you that is, there, are, there is literally no absolute pattern of belief, Holy Spirit, and how all that takes place in the book of Acts. Because when you read chapter 10 of Cornelius' event, what happens? Before Peter ever finishes his sermon. Now, wouldn't this be awesome? If I was preaching and people got saved just right now. Just immediately as I'm preaching the word. Because that's what took place. Peter was not even done with his sermon. But the Bible says the Holy Spirit fell on them. Did they lay hands on them? No, okay? No, no complete pattern here. And then when, you get, when you're in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit filled them. No laying on of hands. When you get to 19, there is this laying on of hands. And I'm trying to bring about the understanding that all of this was to authenticate a genuine salvation in the hearts of people, but it's not necessarily for sure prescriptive of what we should do today. As a matter of fact, uh, I'll give this to you Uh, In the sermon points. Okay, number one. The book of Acts is transitional with a seismic shift between the Old and the New Testaments. And the promise and fulfillment. 
Here we have the life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, and the outpouring of the Spirit. Y'all understand that those events are the bridge builders from the old to the new. That is the new covenant realized. Life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, which we don't preach on that enough, of the Lord Jesus and the outpouring of the Spirit. This is promise and fulfillment. What does Paul say in his writings? All the promises of Jesus are yes and amen. So, do you think that after Acts 2, everything was clear to believers? No, folks, it's transitional. Have we witnessed some battles when, when the men of God are battling with issues and how things work out in the church? You better believe it. How about all the dietary laws? How about circumcision? How about uh, the uh, Jerusalem Council? There was a grand and glorious theological shift, but it was transitional. And for people to understand all the practical outworkings and, and implications was not easy for believers. So even with Paul, did Paul need to witness the uh, Ephesian believers receiving the Holy Spirit, even by the laying on of hands and the accompanying tongues? I would say yes, because it authenticated that the thing that Paul had was the same thing they had. And so, there's this transitional, there's a seismic shift. Aren't you thankful that you live on this side of the cross of Christ? And we're able to look back at all that Jesus accomplished. Number two, baptism takes place upon belief in Jesus Christ. What did Paul explain to them? Did he explain to them how you needed to be baptized? What was the explanation Paul gave them? He gave them the explanation of the gospel. Folks, baptism follows belief. Baptism doesn't save you. Baptism follows belief. Later, Paul will write. Here's where we're tracking this morning and, and the emphasis of our sermon for us today. Paul will write to the Corinthians, urging them to examine themselves to see if they were of the faith. When's the last time you looked into your own life and did a spiritual inventory to say, Lord, am I truly a child of God? Have I examined my faith? John will tell us, and I'm emphasizing the belief part here, because believing in Jesus is quintessential. There is no salvation apart believing in the person and work of Jesus Christ. By faith, by grace, through faith. John will tell us in his epistle, 1 John, that there are at least three tests that you can think about. There's a doctrinal test. There's an ethical test. And there's an experiential test. What is the doctrinal test? Folks, you've got to believe what the Word says about Jesus. You've got to believe the Bible. You've got to believe what the Word says about Jesus Christ. And doctrinally, 1 John 1, 1 through 4 is awesome. Chapter 2, verse 2. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Without our advocate, we can't be saved. Without our defense attorney, we don't have anybody to plead our case and pay the debt. There's this ethical test. If you're saved this morning, folks, you have to walk in light and love. John said, if you say you have the Father and walk in darkness, you lie and the truth is not in you. So there's this awareness. You want to ask the question, if you're saved this morning, don't ask, well, was it because my baptism didn't take or not? Folks, baptism doesn't save you. Baptism is a public testimony of what actually took place in your heart. If you're going to ask any questions, ask this question. Doctrinally, what do I believe about Jesus? Ethically, am I walking in light and love? And then experientially, check this out in 1 John. 
you will know that the Spirit of God lives in you. Right? That the Holy Spirit of God lives in you. Often religious people, like the disciples of John, do y'all think they were religious people? And we ask the questions, were they saved? I would say absolutely not. Because Paul will say in 1 Corinthians, if you don't have the Spirit of God, you're not a child of God. If you have not the Spirit, then you are not saved. If you're not indwelt by the Spirit of God, then you're not saved. So there's true that we can have religious people that attend to religious events. They can articulate basic Bible truths of the gospel. And yet they can actually live with no signs whatsoever of the fact that they've been regenerated. And made alive. That's what that word means. Born again. It's highly possible that you can be very religious and not have any of those things in your mind. Doctrinal, ethical, or experiential. Y'all do realize that, don't you? That it's possible to be very religious. Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, and Christian Scientologists. All are religious, but they're all lost. None of them know Jesus because it's not the Jesus of the Bible. These disciples had some external form of religion. But until Paul gave them the gospel of Jesus Christ, they had not been changed truly or internally. But praise God, God changes all kinds of people. All sorts of people. Religious types. I've always been fascinated with the testimony and story of John Wesley's conversion. And it bears a huge similarity. Y'all do know how important John Wesley was, right? He lived in the early 1700s. And he was born to a minister. His dad was a preacher. Check all this out. He had one of the most godly women that ever lived to be his mother, Susanna Wesley. He attended Oxford University and was a double professor of Greek and logic at Lincoln College. He served as his father's assistant, and he was also ordained as a preacher. While at Oxford, he was also a member of what was called the Holy Club. It was a group dedicated to wholeheartedly pursuing godliness. He then accepted what he thought was the call to the mission field. And he went over to evangelize Indians in Georgia. I may be saved today because of that. Amen. I mean, he came over to the Holy Land, right? But he came to Georgia around 1930 to evangelize the Indians. And it was an epic failure in his own words. And after failing that, he wrote these words, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? By God's grace, however, in America, he had encountered some Moravians, and this group was known for people who studied the word of God alone, and they prayed and they worshiped. That spiritual vitality was a tremendous testimony to Wesley's life. And this is what he wrote in his journal on the night of May 24th, 1738. Check this out. I quote, In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street, where once I was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. And you know who Luther is. Martin Luther started the Reformation, of which we probably wouldn't have a church today had it not been for the Reformation. About a quarter before time, before nine, while he was describing the change which God worked in his heart through faith in Jesus, Wesley said, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And that assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. So prior to that experience, here was Wesley who was a committed religious man. Folks, he was even part of the Holy Club, right? Right? 
His dad was a preacher. His mom was a fantastic woman of God. He was ordained as a minister. He took the gospel as a missionary to a foreign country. And he was lost. But praise God, if you're in that, if you're in that line of thinking this morning, and you don't know Jesus, you can. Right? Praise God for His Word and how He changes heart. Alright, very quickly. The Holy Spirit comes when we believe. Uh, my favorite text is Ephesians 1.13. On the day you heard the gospel of truth, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Uh, disregarding Acts, when you read what Paul says in all of his epistles, here's what we know. The Holy Spirit comes upon you when you believe. If, if Paul's statement is true, if you don't have the Spirit, you're not my child. For all charismatics and or any other affiliation uh, 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 denominationally, then tell me this. If the Spirit of God comes subsequent of salvation, then what's happening in that middle interim time? If you have not my Spirit, you're not my child. So I guess it is you get Him in part. You, you kind of are halfway saved. But you don't have the Holy Spirit. Folks, do you see how bogus that is? You can't have part of Him, nor is it given subsequently to salvation. It is given synonymously because you can't have life unless the Holy Spirit indwells you. So we learn that the Holy Spirit comes when we believe. Notice, Paul doesn't put the emphasis on a deficiency of learning and knowing the Holy Spirit. The deficiency in them was the fact that they didn't have the object of their faith right. Who is... Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Okay, number four. The conquest of the gospel of the kingdom of God reaches the final frontier. And that's true here. The kingdom of God, folks, cannot be stopped. And folks, we have the same gospel today. Amen? And God has us here. It's almost like Acts 29 instead of 28, right? And we are, but it's not, it's not inspired, okay? But we are living out the God. We're living out Acts today. And you need to believe that God can save anybody in your family who is rottenly sinful. You need to have the belief that God can save anybody on your job site, no matter how they live. The gospel can reach anybody, anywhere, anytime. And we have to believe what the, the Bible says. Folks, you can't stop the gospel. I hope you've learned that through the book of Acts. A city even chalk full of new ageism. God just broke through and for three years the gospel was preached in Ephesus. Amazing. And finally, the passage demonstrates the necessity of the Holy Spirit of God. Do y'all know how, how much we need the blessed Holy Spirit of God? Do y'all realize that? It's not a phantom or an it. It's a person. It's a he. It's the Holy Spirit of God. I love the story of Spurgeon. As Spurgeon would climb the tabernacle stairs to get ready to preach every Sunday morning at his church, he would say these words, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. You know why Spurgeon did that? Because he knew that without the Holy Spirit accompanying the Word of God, there would be no change in people's life. You know that the Bible calls the Holy Spirit the Lord and the giver of life. Aren't you thankful? i got chills up and down my backbone knowing that if you come to Christ today, it's because the Holy Spirit of God has gone before this preacher. And He's worked in your heart so that your affections are moved by the Word because the Bible says faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word. Folks, you can't stop the Word when it's accompanied by the Spirit. It's going to accomplish its purpose. Praise the Lord. Now, what we're going to do right now is have a testimony that's like unto this passage. 
We're doing baptism today, uh, and Kathleen Hayworth is going to come. Uh, she shared her testimony with Natalie and I, and I'm telling you what, it was hallelujah shouting ground. And I want our church family to hear this, and when she's done, I'm going to baptize Mr. Terry Tessendorf, and I'm also going to baptize Kathleen, okay? Good morning, everyone. I apologize. I did not print off my notes this morning, so I've got my phones up here with me, so bear with me. Um, I'm also a long-winded person, so um, I'm going to try to keep it, keep it to the minimal here, but um, I do want to share with you kind of what God has done in my life and um, basically where I've come from and, and the struggles that I've, I've dealt with. Um, I am a happily married wife of nine years um, to my amazing husband, Bo, who's over here. Um, we live on a farm in Billings, Missouri, where I am a proud mother of uh, 13 chickens, two dogs, and a cat. Um, we, we love living out in the country, and we, we really enjoy life. But um, to kind of understand where I've come from and where um, the Lord has blessed and, and, and pulled me through some difficult times, we kind of have to start back when I was a little kid. So... Um, I grew up in a strong Christian home. Um, we were always in church. I never knew any different. My parents had a key. We were there all the time. Everybody knew who I was, you know, and I knew about Jesus. I knew about the Bible studies and Noah's Ark and, and, and everything. Um, but I, I didn't really understand completely. You know, I, I was still a child. Well, when I was about six years old, um, my parents had decided to rent a movie um, that was called A Thief in the Night. So some of you may be kind of familiar with that type of movie, but it's a movie about the book of Revelations. And as you can tell, a six-year-old learning about the book of Revelations, I was pretty scared to death. You know, it was a big thing. Um, I didn't want to be left alone. My family were Christians. They went to church. And I didn't want to be here left alone with nobody biggest fear ever. So I started crying. My parents were like, what is wrong? Like, what's the matter? And I was like, I don't want to be left alone. I want to, I want Jesus in my heart. I don't want to be left here. I don't want to be, be not taken. And so of course they prayed with me and they took me to the pastor that next Sunday. And, and the pastor asked me a few standard questions, you know, I was six years old. So they're pretty, pretty low key. And, uh, you know, he baptized me a few Sundays later on an Easter Sunday. And I thought, okay, I asked Jesus into my heart. I've been baptized. Um, you know, I believed in heaven. Um, but I obviously was a child, and I still didn't fully understand what salvation really was, you know. So um, my spiritual life didn't really grow much as a child other than just going to church. I was a social butterfly, as you can kind of tell. I like to talk. Um, and I enjoyed going and visiting friends and meeting new people and chatting it up with everybody, and so it was a social outing for me. I went because it was a social outlet. I didn't go because I wanted to hear what the preacher had to say. I didn't go because the music was awesome. I went because I wanted to see my friends. And so um, church kind of stayed that way for me all through high school, um, you know, and, and I, I would go to church camp. I knew how to tell somebody how to accept Christ in their heart, but I didn't have him in my heart. He wasn't there. Um, so... I didn't really realize, like, what a spiritual life was supposed to be like. I didn't understand. Um, and I had it all around me. I thought that church, going to church was saving me, and, like, this was how it was supposed to be, right? Like, I'm doing everything right. Um, but life kind of changed a little bit for me. Um, I met my amazing husband in 2008. Um, we got married that following February of 2010. I guess it was about a year and a half later. Um, we stayed in church. 
he came to church with me. We both, we both were big parts of church. We sang in the choir. We um, taught classes through Awanas, and I worked in the nursery every Sunday morning. I spent a lot of time um, trying to minister to others, but I wasn't growing in my faith. I wasn't getting those connections that I needed to be the, the proper Christian person that God intended me to be. So um, it became our second job. That's what it was. It was a second job to us. Um, we got a little overwhelmed, and with the way that life played out, my husband took a different job, which led him to work a different shift, which then led me to have more time by myself, which then caused me to have anxiety issues. And I struggled a lot. I struggled with a lot of fears. And so um, being in a small town in northern Missouri, people kind of judge you a little bit when they say you've got anxiety problems or for some reason you're stressed out and there's no reason for it. People don't understand that. So um, we decided that the best decision for us would be to move, um, to move away from the situation so I could get the help that I needed. So we packed up everything, moved to Aurora, Missouri in 2012, um, and I left my church family. I left the church that I had grown up in and the people that had been around me all my life. So I started the general church hopping program, like everybody does, um, and I found myself going but being uncomfortable, going but not really getting anything out of it. Um, I wasn't where I needed to be, um, and it quickly began to where I wouldn't go. I just wouldn't attend church. I thought, eh, it's fine. Church doesn't save you anyways, right? And who knows if this person has it right? So I'm just going to enjoy the free time that I've gained, be glad that I don't have all these extra responsibilities and obligations, and I'm going to just live my life, and we'll just see what happens. So I did. I did, and each, each month, each year that I got further away from that church, um, and from being in that kind of environment, the worse my anxiety got, the worse my fears got. But I got so far away that I couldn't get back. I couldn't figure out how to get back. Um, so in this time, me and my husband uh, decided that we would try to start a family. That was our goal. You know, we'd been married two years. Everybody was like, hey, when are you going to get, you know, some kids going on? What's wrong with you guys? So we were like, okay, this is what we're supposed to do. You're supposed to start a family together. You're supposed to be this awesome couple that raises these kids. And so we started trying. He wasn't really ready, but, you know, guys never really are ready. So, you know. So we started trying, and months went by, and then a year, and no baby. I was still struggling with anxiety. Sometimes I'd cry myself to sleep at night because I was so afraid of dying, honestly. That's really what my anxiety mainly boiled down to was dying. Um, and I now had a new problem. I had this problem of the fact that I couldn't have what I felt like I needed to do as a woman. Um, and so no baby came. We started um, evaluating our options of infertility information um, came through. We started our first round of infertility medicine in 2014, and it led to nowhere. It didn't work. Um, didn't make a difference. More doctor's appointments, more struggles. Didn't help. Um, and I know that there are people that struggle with infertility like anybody else, a young couple. We didn't talk about it. We didn't tell anyone. We didn't want people to know. Um, I was so heartbroken and bitter that um, I'm sure people could tell when they would ask and say, hey, like, how long have you guys been married? And when are you going to have kids? And why don't you have any kids? That I just would start telling people that we just didn't want them because I couldn't deal with it anymore. I wanted them to stop talking about it, stop asking me questions. I just wanted to forget about it. In this time, I also decided that I would blame God for all my problems. So that's the easiest route, right? Let's blame him for all my problems. He's the reason why I have anxiety. He's not giving me what I want. He's not 
um, giving me my heart's desire. And so it's all his fault. And I became very angry with God to the point where I didn't want him involved in my life. I didn't want anything to do with him. When somebody would tell me, hey, you should pray about it. You know, God will help you. I would say, God left me a long time ago. Like, it's not going to do any good. I'm, I'm too far gone from that. He doesn't care. So this continued for years. This continued for a little over five years, around five years. Um, in December 2017, I decided I was done with fighting the anxiety, fighting the not sleeping, fighting the struggles. Um, and I went and saw my doctor, and she said, hey, some medicine will help you, but ultimately you need to really see a counselor. So God placed a counselor into my life. Now, this was not what I was wanting. Um, I had called seven different counseling groups out of Springfield that were not Christian counselors um, because I was wanting to run as far away from God as I could. I felt like I was so angry with him and he didn't have anything that he could help me with. So I was going to do this myself and I didn't want to hear about him. I didn't want him to be the solve in the problem, the solve for my problem. So um, God, God would not allow me to get into a counselor that wasn't a Christian counselor. I called over seven different numbers. All of them told me you had at least a month wait, sometimes three or four. And I couldn't wait. I didn't feel like I was going to make it another week. I was really struggling mentally and self-physically to the point where I was sick. And I, I didn't think I would be here a week. So um, I called a Christian counseling group, and they had an appointment for that next week. So three days later, I um, got in with a counselor in Springfield, other Christian counseling. And she was really, really sweet. She didn't bring up God in the conversation the first session at all. Um, which is one of the biggest things I told my husband. I was like, this is going to be all about how he's going to do all these amazing things, and it's not going to help me. But um, she didn't bring it up. She was really gentle about it. She, um, she just kind of casually helped me work through my problems. We began to talk about my childhood a few weeks in, and she um, asked me, she goes, why don't you go to church anymore? Like, what's going on? Like, what happened? You were in such a strong Christian household. It's very unusual to have that happen. And so um, I told her, I was like, <laughs> hey, he checked out of my life a long time ago, and so I'm, I'm done. I don't, I don't need that, and it's not something I'm interested in. And she goes, well, she goes, just remember, you're never too far for God to not come back and help you and to pull you back up where you need to be. And I just told her, I was like, I'm too far gone. There's no way. Well, God decided to place some people into my life in this process that um, would help guide me and, and teach me how to, how to be a Christian person. And so um, he blessed me with a lot of friends along the way that were very religious and would pray for me even when I didn't want them to. Um, and he slowly worked in me. Um, I uh, took about six months with counseling before kind of things started to click. And one day I was sitting in my living room. It was on June 14th this year. Um, I had sent my husband off to work, made him breakfast, and sent him on his way, and sitting on the couch and watching TV. That's, you know, my normal spot in the morning. And um, a message came on on the TV, and it talked about God's love and how if the world could love the way that God loved, what an amazing world it would be, and how he's never too far away, and his love is this amazing thing. And I sat there, and I let that message sink into me. It was about 15 minutes long, and I thought, that's interesting. I've been hearing all these people say this. But I hadn't felt anything. I hadn't taken it in, and I hadn't been open to feeling it. So um, I sat there after it was over with, and I, I was doing yoga at the time to help relieve my stress. I don't do that anymore because it's too much work. But um, I was doing yoga at the time to release my stress, and I decided I was going to turn some praise music on, turn off the crazy, like, chime music that was going on and put some praise music on. So I pulled up my music app and just put on 
you know, old hymn type music and started to do my yoga and thought, oh, this will be fine, you know, but I had missed it. I had really missed it. And so um, started into that and uh, the Lord just broke my heart. He just, he broke me. He was waiting for the right opportunity. He'd been persistent. He had placed people in my life, but I I was finally ready, and I was finally where I needed to be. And so God blessed me um, in that living room floor as I fell to the floor in tears um, and cried for hours and asked him to come back into my life and to take control of my life and to truly give myself to him. Um, And so that happened, and um, it was an amazing experience, something I can't even explain. It's just overwhelming. Um, I didn't tell anybody about it because I was embarrassed. You know, I was supposed to be this great Christian girl who grew up in a church home and was supposed to be following everything that way she was supposed to be, but hadn't done that at all. And so um, I held my, held that inside of me. I didn't tell my husband for several months um, because I was just ashamed. I was, I felt like I hadn't done things right. And so um, now here I am standing in front of all of you and telling everybody. But, um, but God truly has blessed me. My life has changed so much since June. Um, My husband and I, uh, we attended church here uh, back starting in June, just after Father's Day, and Pastor Philip started mentioning that he was going to preach on spiritual liberties, which to us was a big thing. Most pastors don't preach on that, and um, you know, we we had a lot to learn. We had been away from church. We didn't really know what we were supposed to do as Christian individuals, and so he started uh, mentioning that he was going to do that in, in July, and so we started coming here to Ozark First Baptist, and um, he worked through Pastor Philip. Um, every week, we would be in the car talking, and Pastor Philip would preach on the exact same thing we were talking about. I would jokingly say, he's got a recorder in our car. He's listening to everything. Like, how did this guy get this information? And so I know now the Holy Spirit was working through him, working on leading and guiding us back. My husband's attended men's encounter. Um, which really helped him on how to learn how to be a godly individual. And our house has just ran extremely different. My anxiety is pretty much gone. Um, you know, I, I still have times where I struggle and I have to give things to God daily, but I know that if I give him my struggles, he will help and he will take care of me. So I want you to know today that you're never too far away from God. He's always there for you. He knows your struggles. You don't have to be perfect. You just have to be willing and open to him and letting the spirit work in you. Um, He'll always meet you where you are, and he'll always help you through whatever struggles you're dealing with. I wasted a lot of time that I could have, that I'm never going to get back, and I've had to forgive myself for it, but I know now that God has a bigger purpose for me, and I hope that in sharing this, it helps someone here.